Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 15 of Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and tonight we visit the terrors of the deep. As a U.S. Navy member transcribes things experienced on the chilling ocean waters. Side note here, listeners. Horror comes in all kinds, and this week's trip to the hill takes us to a place that mentions drug use as well as harm and death of ocean animals. Consider yourself notified. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all of our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. 
Did I mention they're ad-free? Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, from author Chris Colazar, I give you Naval Horrors. Light thinks it travels faster than anything, but it is wrong. No matter how fast light travels, it finds the darkness has always got there first and is waiting for it. Terry Pratchett, Reaper Man. Private Logs, Petty Officer First Class Mac B. Guffin, 2019-09-29. This is me, out at sea. You know, probably the dumbest thing I've ever done was shoot heroin in a school parking lot. On my knees, deep-throating Uncle Sam's brand of freedom eight days a week. That's how I ended up here, on a boat bigger than my hometown. I was 26, so not a student, given America's proclivity for school massacres, And really, it only makes sense that the cops would get called for a strange car in a high school parking lot. But since I was young and with no previous record, the judge cut me a break. They told me I could go ahead and enlist in Donald Trump's army. If I was willing to murder strangers for this rich, second-rate celebrity, I could remain a free man. Well, free outside of that binding contract the military makes you sign. Anyway, I know you probably don't give a shit about my life. For most Americans, that holier-than-thou bullshit mentality of support our troops amounts to nothing more than don't question what our wealthy parasite overlords deign to do with our soldiers. But I feel it's necessary to give some context before we get to the weird shit I'm about to tell you. I'm an ex-junkie on Uncle Sam's imperialist brand of the Scared Straight program. I'm not the square-jawed Captain America kind of guy, nor am I the psycho-sadist type, the military's fourth most prominent type of soldier one often finds capering about within its ranks. The top five types of military enlistees go in order like this. One is poor people who feel they have no other options in life and have convinced themselves that they just might make the world a better place. Two. Captain America types. Three, losers like myself with drug problems and pending legal charges. Four, psychotic sadists who generally want to rape and pillage. Five, colossally stupid Christians, the white Jesus type, who think they're fighting some kind of holy war. This is my experience of what the proud U.S. World Police mainly consists of. 
your tax dollars hard at work. Just think about that every time you look over your measly paycheck from your minimum wage job. Savor that thought as you see that between federal and state, you got hosed for two or three hundred bucks. Motherfucking America. But I digress. I don't feel some higher calling to be the best of the best, and I believe in the Freedom of Information Act more than the non-disclosure agreement I was forced to sign when I joined up in this chicken shit outfit. I'm just a normal guy with normal problems, and somehow that resulted in me finding myself in a distinctly abnormal situation, and that's what I'm here to talk about. So, now that you're up to speed, let me bring you to today's events. I'm in my quarters right now. I'm sure the higher-ups haven't taken all of our laptops and phones away yet because they just forgot, due to the absolute insanity that has unfolded in the last 24 hours. But it's only a matter of time before they do. So I'm going to write this as fast as I can. I'm going to send it to my buddy on the mainland, and he's going to post it. I told him not to edit anything as I'll be deleting the files on my end after I send them to him, so his copies will be the only version of the originals. I apologize for any grammatical errors, but ain't nobody got time for that shit. I mean, Jesus's ballsack, the shit I just saw. Okay. Okay. Let me take a couple of deep breaths and slow this down. We were way out in the Pacific. And I mean way out. We were playing war games with the Russians. There were just two of us, out there in the middle of nowhere, with literally nothing breaking the water's surface for 400 miles in any direction. I don't know how alone you've ever been. Maybe you've hiked the Appalachian Trail or something. You know, been someplace where you're truly away from society. It's just... creepy. I was stationed on the USS Barry. It's an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer. Even with the general cacophony of over 300 people sharing a limited space, and the steady hum of gigantic engines, something was unsettling about being somewhere humans would never naturally exist. And the Ruskies were sporting a Cashin-class destroyer. I don't know how to say the real name. Let's call it... Uh, Putin and Trump suck dick. Or PTSD, for short. We were on the second day of our supermanly dick-waving contest. The sun was beating down upon us mercilessly from the cloudless sky. All the boys were out on deck greased up and ready to share some freedom. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I was locked and loaded with my true love at my fire station, my M2 Browning. Her name was Betsy, and she was the most successful relationship I'd had in nearly a decade. All told, there were eight fire stations arranged around the bow. The Ruskies were doing the same. It was a truly retarded gesture. Who the hell gets into small arms ship-to-ship combat in 2019? But when two captains feel the urge to compare their wangs, you get it. We were just talking the usual bullshit when the call came up on our comms. I was lollygagging at my station, jawing it with my mate Cole. His fire station was above and behind me on the second deck, close to one of our landing pads. A Swedish supertanker had put out a distress call. The details were scarce and made little sense. Captain Diomedes is a man of few words. Though, to his credit, he's not a practitioner of the all-popular ego trip known as the need-to-know mentality. He relayed to all hands exactly what he had been told. The ultra-large crude oil tanker, the Nanny, had run into trouble on the water, reporting that they had collided with a whale. That part made no sense. Supertankers are frickin' beasts. They're over 12,000 feet long. What the fuck was a whale going to do to that? Even if it swam directly into a propeller, kamikaze style, it would be like a speed bump to the nanny. This, of course, changed the nature of our war game. The wang-waving contest had shifted from who can kill who better to who can rescue people better. Both ships immediately broke away and headed north, speeding balls out toward the emergency heading even farther away from land than we already were. The PTSD immediately took the lead in the race. The rumors of the Ruski's propulsion methods proved true. The vibrations of the roaring engines six decks below were proof enough that our captain had ordered the engine room to give it their all, though I bet Cole that Diomedes would never admit it. But, when in doubt, take to the air... That's not some wise proverb. I just made that up. Realizing that he wouldn't beat the Russian captain in a straight-up race, Diomedes ordered one of our seabirds into the air. The chopper went streaking off, leaving both ships in the dust. It wasn't until then that I noticed the heavy fog dominating the northern horizon. And I mean dominating. We were still about a mile away and even at this distance, the wall of murk seemed to have no end. It was stretching on as far as the eye could see, both east and west, and its height reached up to an overcast cloud line. 
So, after about a mile, North CAVU was zero. Well, that's some spooky shit right there. A voice to my right made me jump. Jesus, man. I sighed. Lieutenant Michael Riggs had materialized next to me. The dude was like that. A sea ninja. He could insert himself into a crowd of gossiping junior officers without anyone realizing it until some shit-talking had already well and truly been underway. Howdy, McMuffin. He smirked at me. Fortunately, the guy wasn't a dick. He seemed to derive sufficient pleasure from his natural stealth in the form of startling the shit out of people. Oh, and by the way, McMuffin was my nickname on this floating city. His gaze wandered off to the north. Just thought I'd come topside and see how everything was going, he said. Everything's shipshape up here, Lieutenant, I said quickly. He nodded absently. His eyes scanned the limited horizon. And there's no tanker inside. So I guess we're going into that shit, he finally said. Before I could reply, our conversation was interrupted by First Class Petty Officer John Witherspoon. Oi, lads, look here, he shouted. We call him Spoon or Spoony most of the time. Spoon was an army brat who had spent most of his life on an American base in Britain, so he had that distinct English accent. I thought it made him sound like the most sailory sailor on the boat. He was currently occupying the frontmost gun station about ten yards ahead of me. They're off the port! Everyone on port side took a look overboard. Ah, shit, man, I heard Cole say from above. I kept scanning the water. What? I shouted up to him. I don't see shit! Cole pointed down toward the dark water. I turned to look up at him, his nose wrinkled in disgust. I turned to look again. Then I saw it. It was a humpback, I think. The massive creature looked like a giant had filleted it, then spread it open and slapped it down on the surface of the water. I was grateful for the small mercy that the thing wasn't floating belly up, to at least spare us what was undoubtedly a far more gruesome sight. The smell hit us as we drew nearer. It's pretty hard to describe. If you want a good idea of what it was like, head out on a hot summer day and go to the alley behind your nearest restaurant. Then find the compost bin. Stick your face in and breathe in real deep. Just then, both ships began to slow. Ah, oh, come on! Cole shouted. Do we have to slow down right next to this fucking thing? It doesn't matter, bruv, Spoony said grimly. Take a look at what's floating between us and that broom. And so we did. And fuck me if the water in front of us wasn't filled with dead sea life. Dead and rotting and smelling like the goddamned apocalypse. Not just whales. There were sharks and octopuses. There were plants, small fish and jellyfish. All dead. All rotten. This has got to be some kind of oil company fuck, Riggs said, more to himself than me. 
We all stared down at the water as the berry chugged slowly forward. The deck vibrated slightly every time something big impacted the hull. Our ship was a true badass maiden of the sea. We all knew that no amount of dead sea life would threaten her hull. But still, warships weren't designed to drive through floating graveyards. We could feel the ship exerting herself to push through the mass of dead things, even this high up. Our seabird hung back, hovering about a hundred feet over the water, the wall of murk towering over the chopper. The quiet was broken by someone retching somewhere near the starboard bow. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Riggs grin and shake his head slightly. But, my God. Once we were in its thick, the stench made even the lieutenant's smile falter. I couldn't describe it to you in words. It's just something you'd have to experience for yourself. It's a scent that offends the soul. An odor that scratches at the lizard brain. Something that knocks ominously on the door leading back to our primordial beginnings. It's gotta be that fog, I remember saying. Shit was abnormal. I swore that it seemed backlit by an ever-so-slight greenish tint, like there was some bright light way off within the swirling mass. Both ships slowed even further down as they neared the fog bank. Finally, after about another quarter mile, we cleared the corpse field and stopped about a hundred yards out. The sea all around us was still dotted with the dead, but thankfully the strength of the stench was dialed back as we moved to less crowded waters. Someone must have given the order for the chopper to proceed, because a moment later it pressed forward. It was climbing higher as it disappeared into the murk. The mist was so thick that it even muffled the sound of the chopper, and within a moment, the only evidence we had a bird in the air was a faint whoop, 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 thudding in the distance. I'll bet that shit's toxic or something, I continued, while simultaneously visualizing how long it would take me to get my gas mask out and onto my face. It's gotta be some corporate fuck-up. Someone dropped a bunch of poisonous shit by accident in the water, and now it's capping the local ecosystem. I began to monologue. I talk. A lot. I don't know why, but when I get nervous, that's how I cope. Fuck me sideways, Spoon muttered. What in the hell is growing off of that one? I turned to look. At first, I couldn't make sense of what I was seeing. I'm still not sure. It looked to me to be another filleted humpback. But this one had some weird shit jutting out of it. It was hard to tell at that distance, but something was growing out of the carcass. It almost looked like a small tree. I don't know what to write here. God... There was this thick, twisted trunk. The wood, at least I think it was wood, was shit brown and mottled with patches of fuzzy white mold. I remember imagining Exhibit saying, Yo dog, we heard you like horrifying mold, so we put horrifying mold on your horrifying mold. A few sickly-looking branches bent up toward the sky. 
Upon them were sprouted disturbing mushrooms, unnaturally large, the color of rotten strawberries and dotted with milky white circles. Then the sound of a distant caw drew everyone's attention to the mist. Gulls? Riggs asked, clearly mystified. How the fuck are there gulls out here? Soon, more caws echoed out of the fog. It became clear that there were a bunch of them somewhere out in the gloom, and by the sound of it, they were heading toward our position. I shrugged. The lieutenant was right. We were more than 400 miles from any documented landmass. Not even one of those cartoony 12-foot islands with a lone palm tree lay anywhere out here to break the surface of this void. A lone seagull broke through the mist, heading towards us. Gulls began pouring out of the swirling miasma in the dozens shortly after that. Ever so slightly, me and Spoonie raised the barrels of our weapons toward the sky. I pictured Staff Sergeant Alden at that moment coming out on the deck and berating us. What the hell are you bubblegummers pointing your weapons at the sky for? Don't tell me you kids are afraid of some mangy birds! I imagined him saying. But Staff Sergeant Alden didn't come out on deck. Instead, we watched as the sky between us and the fog filled up with gulls. For fuck's sake, how many of them are there? Spoonie asked in exasperation. I couldn't be sure, but I felt like there were at least a hundred of the little fuckers up there, making a racket as they approached. Must be all the dead sea life, muttered Cole. It's a smorgasbord out here. No way, bruv. You think those gulls are dumb enough to eat that rotten shit? Spoonie said. Then, as if on cue, the lead seagull dropped a load. It fell a hundred feet before striking the deck directly in front of Spoonie. I watched the little blob of feces twirl gracefully through the air. Why, that little bast... Spoonie started to say, but was interrupted by a little blob of poop striking his shoulder. Fuck! He shouted. I laughed. I couldn't help myself. It's not fucking funny, you wanker! Spoon shouted as he ripped off his jacket. This only made everyone else start laughing. However, the revelry was abruptly cut short as dozens of shit blobs fell out of the sky, like a light summer sprinkle. Shit, Riggs said appropriately. Suddenly, guano shit began striking the deck all around us. I looked up. That was a mistake. Before taking a poop round to the face... I spotted at least 50 birds passing overhead with what had to be at least a hundred more behind them, and I was pretty sure they were all relieving themselves as one, as the light sprinkle rapidly turned into a steady rain. Given my position on the deck, I felt more than I saw of the event. I doubled over, retching. Then, almost as one, they let loose with the bird equivalent of an artillery barrage. Oh, what the fuck? Someone shouted. By the time the bulk of the seagulls passed overhead, the light salvo had turned into a literal shitstorm. Obviously, we weren't supposed to leave our posts, but a few people did anyway. They were frantically running for whatever cover they could find. 
sailors were slipping and sliding all over the deck. A few of them were busting their asses pretty hard. I took off my jacket and tried to use it as a makeshift umbrella. I like to think I remained at my post because I'm a good soldier, but the truth is that I didn't run for cover because Riggs was standing right next to me. This reminds me of the last time I saw my ex-wife, Riggs shouted over the racket. He was grinning up from under his jacket, which he'd decided to use much like mine. Just then, the can lit up with chatter. All hands, all hands, prepare for emergency landing. The hell? Riggs said to no one in particular. A heartbeat later, the Seahawk came streaking out of the fog. Somehow, in the pandemonium, we hadn't heard the sound of her approach. She was listing at a bad angle as she barreled toward us. Squinting and shielding my eyes to see through the shitstorm, it took me a minute to realize what was going on. The chopper was plastered with blood, poop, and feathers. Even at this distance, you could tell that the entirety of the windshield was covered in bird gore. Damn it! Rakes shouted. Back! Everyone into the deckhouse! On the double! It was clear not everyone had heard him, but those who did broke and ran. I remained partially spellbound, only managing slow backward steps as I watched the chopper struggle. The chopper was coming in hot. Riggs ran forward, frantically waving and shouting at those who hadn't moved. Already she'd crossed half the distance between us. Now I could see the black smoke coming out of her rotor. The blaring sound of the impact alarm going off startled me out of my stupor. She was going to hit, there was no doubt, and from the looks of it, she was going to crash pretty much where we were standing, and so I turned and began sprinting away. I may have already mentioned that I'm a recent ex-junkie, having spent most of my young adult life getting wasted and zoning out on beat-up couches and love seats. And so you can imagine, I'm not the American Ninja Warrior type. So I sprint about five ungainly steps before I slip, Scooby-Doo banana peel style, on a big ol' patch of bird turds. It's full-on vine material. I do a sort of half-flip in the air. My feet and the darkening skies are the last things I see before the back of my head connects with the deck. I'm not sure how long I was out. Neither is anyone else, mainly because everyone was preoccupied with $42.9 million of military hardware slamming into $1.8 billion of military hardware, as it were. The more expensive war machine won out in the end. Later, I was told that the seabird hit the ground sideways, then began a kind of alligator death roll across the lower deck. At some point, the blades all snapped off. A six-foot piece managed to lodge itself into the fucking SLQ antenna, sending deadly sharp pieces of composite titanium and steel shooting across the deck at blinding speed. Miraculously, there was only one casualty, one of the pilots. The other guy, they were leaping out of the chopper seconds before impact. Then the dude fell about 90 feet. The co-pilot, specialist Billy Hamilton, survived. 
Spoon later told me that he'd watched it all happen. This is word for word what he said. I recorded his account, and now copy it here. I know this messes with the pacing of the story a bit, but trust me. I mention it because this event becomes extremely relevant later on. 2019-09-29 Testimony of Specialist John Witherspoon I was spellbound, mate. It was like the chopper was coming in hot, right? But when Hamilton jumped out of that bird, I just couldn't look away, seeing him twirl down through the air like that. I thought he was about to pop his clogs for sure, but then the damnedest thing happened. Right below him was one of those dead humpbacks, and growing out of it was one of those fucked up tree things, you know? Anyway, this one had some real big mushrooms sprout up from its belly, like Super Mario Brothers big. So he smashes through this fucking fungus canopy, and I can see that they're bending far before breaking, clearly cushioning his fall a bit. Then he hits the dead whale, and it's so soft it sort of caves into itself as he slams into it. He disappears into the blubber of this thing. He must have blasted straight through to the other side and into the water, because half a minute later, I see him bob to the surface. Couldn't fucking believe it. Luckiest thing I have ever seen. End testimony. That's verbatim, and Spoon was the only one who said they saw what happened. He said it took the chopper smashing into the front of the deckhouse to snap him back to reality. When I woke up, Cole and Riggs were kneeling over me. The seabird had rolled right past me. It's probably a good thing I'm a clumsy oaf. I feel like if I'd kept running, my slow ass would never have made it through the front door. The thing is, the real proverbial shit hadn't yet hit the fan, but it was about to. It was about to knock the fan off the damn table. A fire control team was already on deck, dousing the wreckage in flame retardant. Black smoke billowed out in a great plume from the destroyed seabird, mixing with the encroaching wall of fog. The previously blue sky was beginning to darken as the overcast rolled south. I'd just been helped to my feet and taken in the surrounding carnage when the impact alarm blared once again. The medical staff was checking on the injured, and they just finished fishing Billy Hamilton out of the water. Fuck? Cole said it like a question. As if in answer, the can lit up again. All hands to stations. All hands to stations. Unidentified craft approaching on a collision vector. That's all I needed to hear. I didn't know what was going on, but the next weird thing that came at me from out of this fog was getting shot. Everyone scrambled to their posts. I jumped on Betsy, flicking off her safety. Deep below, the Barry's engines roared into life. The deck vibrated as she sought to accelerate faster than she probably should have. She turned hard to port. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Riggs unholster his pistol. I almost laughed at that. The berry let out one long horn blast. Even though it was far above our position, the sound was still teeth rattling. The horn paused briefly, then followed up with five short blasts. 
No one on the command deck had yet decided that this unidentified ship had violent intent. Otherwise, we would have already been birds free, lighting up that fog like the 4th of July. Then, we saw it. A gigantic black shape hurtling through the mist, moving faster than any ship should through fog that dense. That sickly green light backlighted its dark outline. Even as obscured as it was, I could tell something was off about its shape. The berry's horn blasted five more times, and the sound was echoed by the PTSD, which was floating about a quarter mile from our starboard beam. The engines roared away far below, but I could already feel it. We weren't going to make it out of the way on time. Holy shit, she's going fast, I said. Why the hell is she going that fast? Riggs seemed to ponder the question for a minute before answering. Maybe they were lost in the fog, he said. And when our seabird went in, they decided to follow the sound out. Could be the captain's panicking and going full speed ahead because he doesn't hear the bird anymore. Huh. That was all I managed to say in return. And then... The behemoth came barreling out of the gloom about a hundred yards to port, rocketing out of the murk straight at us. Shouting sprang up all around the deck. At that moment, everyone realized that it was aiming for us. My god, Riggs said. Is that the Nani? Spoon shouted. That's the fucking Nani, in it? It was. There was no mistaking a super tanker. It was bigger than any ship in the Navy. The largest vessel I'd ever seen was the USS Kitty Hawk until that moment. And this fucker was taller and wider by a large margin. But as the details began to resolve, the thing became almost painful to look at. The ship's hull was a dirty amalgam of corpse blue and rust brown. The steel hull was horribly corroded and we could see ragged holes where the metal had rotted completely away, even at this distance. It made me think of the kind of cavity that marks the death of a tooth. But it was what was hanging from the hull that was truly disturbing. Bodies. Dozens. No, hundreds. Hundreds of bodies were strewn haphazardly all across the visible underside of the ship, gray and bloated from exposure. It somehow reminded me of tinsel garland strung across a Christmas tree. There was no rhyme or reason to the corpse's arrangement. Some looked like they were nailed to the rotten steel, Passion of the Christ style. Others were anchored to the hull by rusty chains. Some dangled by the neck like they'd been hung, others by a foot or an arm. The cap had decided that this ship was piloted with malicious intent, because a split second later, the Bushmaster on starboard opened up, letting loose a three-shot burst. The rounds punched a line of hubcap-sized holes through the rotten steel of the vessel. Then someone, I think it was Cole, opened up with their M2. Since the command to fire had not been given, this probably would result in some real disciplinary action later on. However, no one thought about that, as the whole deck erupted in a cacophony of gunfire. 
It was a token gesture at best. What the fuck were our Brownings going to do to this monster? If anything was going to put her down, it would be the Bushmasters. But even if we turned her into Swiss cheese, I doubted it would make a difference at this range. It was impossible to see where my shots hit, with dozens of shots pummeling into the super tanker. However, more interesting was the effect our shots had on the hull itself. Several of the hanging bodies transformed into something that looked like pulled pork. Ordinarily, the rounds would most likely just ricochet off the thick hull, but in some places, the decaying steel gave way like paper. Even at this distance, I could see a line of basketball-sized holes stitch their way across the moldering underside of the ship. None of our shots should have seen the nanny begin taking on water, but something in my mind told me that this monstrosity didn't give a shit about sinking. The PTSD, for its part, took a couple of pot shots on our behalf from its portside A-190s, but they weren't about to launch any heavy ordnance given the target's proximity to our ship. The giant towered over us, casting our ship in its growing shadow. The Barry had completed a 90-degree turn and was now trying to accelerate out of the supertanker's way. The gargantuan ship began filling up our entire view on the starboard side. At 50 meters, I spotted something on the enemy's stern that made me stop and stare, despite the cacophony. There were what looked like gigantic masts. That's the best way I can describe it. Masts at least a hundred feet tall. I could see yards of the lower, top, and gallant sails even from my limited vantage point, as if the ship was commanded by 18th century pirates obsessed with manual lines of sight and wind power. Except, in place of sails, were dozens of corpses hanging from the yards by chains and swinging lazily in the air high above as the nanny bore down upon us. Seagulls flew about in droves in the sky above the bodies, apparently enjoying the easy pickings. The terrible sight was quickly hidden as the gigantic ship closed the remaining distance. We could see the massive hull looming over us at about 50 feet, to give you an idea of the size disparity here, the USS Barry is about 155 meters long and rises about 20 meters above the waterline. She's a big mama jama, to be sure. But the nanny... Well, the nanny was about 500 meters long and rose about 60 meters from the waterline. That's not even counting the massive fuck-all nightmare masts. If the berry was a great white, then the nanny was a megalodon. And not just a regular one. It was the shark from that movie The Meg. And, unfortunately, Jason Statham wasn't around to boop it on the nose. The impact alarm wailed once again, and the cam lit up. All hands, brace for impact. And so we did. The berry's engines roared below deck. Almost as one, we stopped firing and white-knuckled our weapons as the Leviathan bore down upon us. She gave one final heave to clear the nanny to a little past the starboard beam. It wasn't enough. We couldn't see where the nanny hit us, 
As our view passed, the gatehouse was nil, but we sure knew when it happened. The impact was apocalyptic. The sound of steel colliding with steel was deafening. The world went sideways as I was thrown off my feet. My fingers were ripped painfully from my weapon. I didn't black out or anything, but the impact was so jarring that I had an overpowering sense of vertigo, and I forgot where I was for a long time. I'm not sure how long I lay with my back against the deck, staring up at the spinning sky. Someone grabbed me and hauled me up. It took me another minute to focus on who it was. It was Spoonie. I remember smiling lazily. Good old Spoonie. Great guy. It took me a couple of seconds to realize he was holding the collar of my uniform in bald fists. Wide-eyed and frantic, he was yelling something. But my ears were ringing, and I couldn't hear him. Let's fucking go! His voice finally cut through my daze and the blaring alarms. Go? I asked. Instead of replying, he began to pull me toward the starboard side. I looked around as I stumbled along. All about us were panicked sailors running to and fro. The hell? I said to no one in particular. The ship's fucking sinking, you anchor! Come on! Then it all came back to me. Well, at least partially. We were about ten yards from starboard now. The nanny, it hit us? Jesus, McMuffin! He shouted over his shoulder as he dragged me along. That hit turned you into a bloody muppet! The ship listed badly to port, and I almost fell backward. But Spoonie grabbed me by the collar again and righted me. Come on, mate. The whole ship's going down. We gotta leg it. I guess that was enough to snap me out of my stupor, and I began to sprint along with Spoon. The thought was jarring. The entire ship was going under? This place had been my home for nearly two years. I'd lived through the latter part of my opiate withdrawal here. I'd seen the sun rise and set a hundred times from the decks of the berry. It was so massive it felt like a small town, and now it was headed to the bottom of the ocean? The thought just seemed insane to me. We reached the starboard side. Without pausing, we leapt together, holding hands, like this was some shitty Michael Bay film. Like I was Megan Fox and Spoon was Shia LaBeouf, saving his super bangin' motorcycle expert girlfriend from certain doom. I don't know if you've ever fallen 50 feet, but suffice to say, it can suck. We hit the water hard. The world became a haze of bluish green as salt water shot up my nose. Spoon and I were separated upon impact. I just floated there for a moment. I was taking it all in. Despite the pandemonium, I felt a sort of tranquility as I hung suspended. A cacophony of muted shouts and splashes echoed in the sea all around. An explosion echoed somewhere overhead. The water around me shook with the force of it. The water was so clear that I could see sailors plummeting into the salty water ten yards away. Then, 
I chanced to look down, and my momentary peace was shattered. The blue-green of the water slowly darkened until about fifty feet below me was nothing but a yawning abyss. I've never been a fan of deep water, and at that moment, I remembered that I was more than four hundred miles from anything in water filled with rotting corpses. I stared down, spellbound by a void no human was ever intended to look upon. And then, way down in the briny depths, I swear I saw something shift. Some monolithic form quivered and then went still. That's when I decided it was time to get out of the fucking water. A few seconds later, I breached the surface and gasped in a lungful of air. All around me, people were splashing and shouting in panicked tones. McMuffin! Spoon shouted, somehow spotting me amidst the insanity. He swam up to me. There's something below us. I could tell he didn't like the sound of that. Come on, let's get to one of the lifeboats. And so we did. Now, I'll give you the abbreviated version of what went down next. Long story short, we got to a lifeboat. Our comrades and the Russians hauled us out of the salty water. However, there is another kind of surprise to this story. Nothing accosted us on our swim to safety. The berry didn't sink. Nope. She listed like a motherfucker and looked like she was going down. But in the end, the captain kept her afloat. So an absolute assload of us jumped off our ship and into the water for no good reason. I know, right? It's ridiculous. Anyway, after the nanny hit us, she seemed to run out of steam. The bloated bodies swayed and leered at us as we worked to get everyone back in the boat. It took us over an hour to get everyone out of the water, and in all that time the nanny just floated there, as if she were dead in the water. Even though she didn't sink, our ship took some serious damage. After that, both the Barry and the PTSD were ferried away from the nanny. They took us out of the aqua graveyard and put about a mile between us and the supertanker. Now it's after midnight. We haven't gotten much info from the higher-ups between medical evals and cleaning up what we could. And even as I lay here in my bunk, crews are working on much-needed repairs. But I'll tell you what I know so far. Captain Diomedes radioed for some backup, but I'm told it would be days before anyone gets here. Since the collision, the nanny hasn't moved or answered any hails from the Ruskies or us. And tomorrow, when the sun rises over this endless expanse, we will send a boarding party to the ship. I'm going to be a part of that boarding party. It's great that my captain thinks highly enough to have hand-picked me for his team, but our destination is a mystery draped in corpses. And if I'm being honest, I'm not sure how I feel about that. So, yeah. I'll post again if I live to see my laptop. All I can say for sure is that today, I miss heroin.
and private log. You've been listening to Naval Horrors by Chris Colazar. Thank you so much for tuning in this evening. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and I'll see you right here this same time next week. If you enjoyed what you heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, username Viking Guitar, and also on Instagram as Viking Guitar Productions. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda. Finalization by Craig Groshek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I do take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure that you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. 
You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect any time and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to let us know how we're doing and leave a kind comment. Lastly, don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archives and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, you can hear more of my work on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. However, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.